As was mentioned by Pastor Nitschke this morning, we'll be concluding our study of First Peter. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to the book of First Peter. We're going to be in chapter 5 this morning, finishing that, that study here of First Peter. It's part of our series this year of Hope for Everyday Life. And we've been looking at First Peter after examining the life of Peter to just see what, what sort of timeless and eternal truths that Pastor Nitschke was describing that this book can provide for each and every one of us for hope for our daily lives. And the reason that we're looking to the Bible for that particular hope is because we don't believe that the Bible is some old, dusty book that maybe from time to time we can consult and it'll have something helpful to say. But we believe that the very words of life, the way in which we're to live and order our days, are found in there. I hope and pray, just like the rest of our pastors hope and pray, that that this series has been beneficial to you. And that, that you could even look to specific areas this year and say, I'm different as a result of it. I mentioned we're in chapter 5. You you may remember last week Pastor Burke spoke about the the role of the pastor and began to just discuss what does this particular text talk about. I know for some of you, you are familiar with the the roles of the the pastor, the the role of the elder, and then for some of you, that, that was brand new information. What I hope that you took from our time last week is that the, the role of the pastor, he, he's there for the, the good of the sheep, that the pastor is there for the good of the congregation. And as I was just reflecting on, on why the church needs pastors, why the sheep, and I put myself in the, in the boat of being a sheep as well, why do we need pastors? This, this particular video from YouTube that you probably have seen, well, it came to mind for me. You guys have probably seen the, the role and the, the essential nature of, of the, the shepherd here. And you can see this shepherd boy pulling out this stuck sheep in a cavern. It, the sheep has got itself into a whole lot of trouble and the, the shepherd boy is there. Now, I don't know if that's the appropriate way to dig a sheep out of a hole, but that's the way that this young shepherd boy is doing it. That sheep has gotten himself into a whole lot of trouble, and he's free. Praise the Lord, he is free. Hallelujah, he's not free. (laughs) Why we need pastors so bad. (laughs) At the end of our time last week, we saw this verse that begins to transition and segue Verse 5, you, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility. Why? For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. God is calling His people to put on humility. He, he's opposed. And, and when you just begin to get that verse in your mind, you might even be thinking of corollary verses like James 4 for a moment. Getting in your mind for a moment that the God of the universe, the God who created you, spoke this universe into being, is actively working against those who are proud. I think that we should take this warning and this instruction to put on humility. I think we should take it very seriously. 
So this morning we're looking at the grace of God in the face of your adversary. And I hope that with our time this morning we will see three actions to take in the time of difficulty. You follow along with me as I read in verses 6 all the way to the end of the chapter here this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is true grace of God, so stand firm in it. She who is Babylon, that is Rome, remember where he's writing from, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son, spiritual son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. It's the word of the Lord. This morning we're looking for actions and steps to take during times of difficulty and seeing how do we find the the grace of God in those hard moments. And the first, which probably is jumping right off the page to you, is that we are called to humble ourselves under the hand of God. Verses 5 and 6 again here for a moment. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. All over the Bible, we see the concept of the mighty hand of God coming up. We, we see it in the book of Exodus, where God says that he will deliver and care for his people with his mighty right hand. It's a way of describing God's sovereign power over this world. But when we're told to humble ourselves, we're told to humble ourselves in a very particular way by casting our anxiety on him. Now, depending on how you might have learned this verse, or even perhaps how your Bible translates it, remember, all translation is a bit of interpretation, it may make it more or less clear that the way in which you humble yourself is by casting your anxieties on him. Meaning, there aren't two commands in the passage that we're looking at here today. One to humble yourself and the other to cast your anxieties on him. It's the means by which you humble yourself is casting your anxieties on him. I think for a moment, you guys have probably seen them. You probably were even this at one point. A small child who's trying to accomplish a task. We've all seen that kid. He's got to do something, and he's being incredibly proud and doesn't want to ask for any help getting that done. 
You, you've probably been that parent or, or seen that parent who, who sees this child struggling and failing and thinking to yourself, if that child would just ask for help, if they would just cry out, that, that parent has the strength, the capability, and the desire to serve that little kid. But all that little kid says is, I want to do it. The parent just wants them to admit, you need my help to solve that problem. That's the dynamic that we see here in the text. God wants us to humble ourselves under his mighty hand so that he would provide us grace. And the the means by which we humble is casting our anxieties on him. It reminded me of the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Uh, Part of the first verse goes a bit like this. You may remember it. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Beloved, there are so many things that no doubt trouble your soul. How are you doing at humbling yourself and admitting to God that you cannot do this on your own? Taking that thing to Him in prayer. Sad reality is, so often for many of us, the only time that we do that, whenever we encounter difficulty at adversity, the the only time is, is when we feel that we are out of options. Totally overwhelmed by life, we say, well, the only thing left to do is to pray about it. And yet I, I think that this passage is instructing us differently. Or to put it another way, is the motto of Christianity, God helps those who helps themselves? Or is the motto of Christianity, I need thee every hour? But in order to cry, I need thee every hour, we must truly change our heart's disposition. You must humble yourselves, and the means by which we do this is to cast your anxieties on him. The the problem for many of us, though, is that we correlate the idea of um, being amazing with our own independence. Living in America, and I'm sure it's been uh, facts for many years throughout all kinds of cultures, we associate being amazing with independence. We, we see the rugged cowboy. We, we see the individual who can do it all themselves, and, and we seem to believe that that sort of person is amazing. Rarely do we celebrate the needy and dependent individual in our culture and our society. But what the text says is as we cast our anxieties on him and as we humble ourselves, we will be exalted. This is where Christianity is just so countercultural, cultural counter to the ways in which we normally think. In our minds, we don't naturally link humility to being the path to exaltation. We tend to think the more that we can do, the more independence that we can show, then the greater we will be. That wasn't true of the path of Christ to his exaltation, and it's not true of us. 
We see this in Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9. Being found in the appearance as a man, he, that is Christ, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, namely, death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Christ humbled himself, and in doing so, that is when, in time, he was exalted. In time, you, by humbling yourself, by casting your anxieties on him, will be exalted. I think in order to do that, however, it requires two things from us. Number one, we must admit we must believe, we must live out in humility that, that God is working everything for His plan and not ours, and that His plan is way better than ours. Now, I think that's something very easy to assent to right now. Be like, yeah, of course I agree that God is working everything to His plan. Of course I believe His plan is better than mine. But is that the narrative of your heart when things go challenging and difficult and hard and suffering is brought into your life? Are you able to clearly say God is working everything according to the counsel of His will and that plan is so much better than my plan? Number two, what I think we need is to be okay with the delay. Both Philippians 2 and both 1 Peter 5 that we're reading and studying today describe that that this exaltation, this deliverance will come with delay, which often means that there will be an aspect of suffering in our lives that we don't quite yet understand. And so God promises at the right time in the right way that He will exalt us. He will exalt you, but you must first purposefully, intentionally humble yourself. And at least in this passage here that we're studying this morning, by casting your anxieties, your cares on Him. The text also indicates something rather unique about all of this humbling and casting of our anxieties on Him. It it tells us that He cares for you. I do wonder how often we take sentences like that for granted. How often we read in the Word of God that God cares for us. He loves us. And we just kind of keep moving through those verses like, okay, well tell me something I didn't already know. Tell me something that's really going to impact my life. God is telling us here that He wants us to cast our anxieties on Him because He loves you. Because He cares for you. And I hope that that would take your breath away this morning. God isn't saying, cast your anxieties on me because I'm amazing and you're not. Although that is completely true. God isn't saying, cast your anxieties on me because I'm going to get the glory and you're going to look like a dork. That is completely true. 
He's not saying, cast your anxieties on me because, well, I guess I'm going to solve it in some sort of annoyed tone that every parent knows that they've given to their child at one point. He's saying, humble yourself and cast your anxieties on me because I love you. I think that's an important reminder for us just to consider that own internal narrative that we all have on a regular basis. Does it need a bit of correcting? Some of us think that, that we're amazing, and, and therefore, why would I ever need to or want to or bother God with my anxieties? That thing needs correcting. Some of us think that we're useless and no one cares for me, so why would I bring those anxieties up to the Lord? And, and that, that narrative needs correcting too. Sometimes we think too high and sometimes we think too low. The point that I'm trying to make here this morning from our text is we can ground the reason to humble ourselves and cast our anxieties, our cares on God because He loves us and that should take our breath away. God is doing this because He loves us. He's not some sort of parent who's stuck in some situation, rolling his eyes, saying, I suppose I'll solve that problem too. He wants to care for me and you. And He wants us to humble ourselves and to admit we need Him. And one of the most important ways that we need Him, that the the text is drawing our attention to, is in the element, in the arena of the various spiritual battles that we will discuss. The text tells us to be alert of the devil's schemes. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Now remember, Peter is a Jew... And so part of what's going to happen here in this next part should be just showing us how he's trying to help us think through the adversary. He says, your adversary. Adversary is the word for Satan in Hebrew. We're talking about that person. Your adversary, the devil. Devil means to divide, to separate. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. The text is drawing our attention to the fact that there is a battle. And this battle is not against flesh and blood. It's telling us that the devil is like a lion looking for someone to devour. You guys have all no doubt seen those Discovery Channel shows safari in Africa tracking one of the lions. And when the the lion is on the hunt, he's not going after the core of the pack. He's not going after all of those water buffalo who are in the center. He's going after the straggler. He's going after the one who is outside of the group. He knows that those are the easiest ones. That is where the most success will lie. But in this case, the devil is looking for all sorts to devour. Now, Before we get further into the text, I just want to say two things about the devil. First and foremost, we tend to fall into some ditches. 
Ditch number one is we overplay the role of Satan and temptation from him in our life. Everything gets chalked up to Satan, Satan, Satan. So, so why did you have a bad morning? Satan. Why did you get angry at your spouse? It was Satan. Why didn't that child of yours finish the homework? It was Satan. Why did grocery bill go up this month? It was Satan. We can fall into the ditch and believe that Satan is responsible for all of the bad that befalls our life. And that would not be true. On the other hand, there are some who possess the worldview that Satan is not part of anything that happens. That worldview is equally wrong and equally problematic. The text reminds us that Satan is real that he is alive, that he is active, and he is seeking people to devour. We don't stand up to him and resist him by saying magical words in Greek, although Pastor Nitschke would love to teach you those words, or casting some sort of spell of protection. Rather, the text gives us the ways in which we stand up to Satan in our lives. And the first is to be firm in our faith. I alluded to James 4 earlier. We even see the connection there between humbling ourselves and a spiritual battle. We won't turn there, but you might remember the words of James 4, 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I think often there is this connection between pride and then the solution of our humbling ourselves and Satan Because many would argue that that Satan is promoting the total anti-God mindset, that of pride. Satan wants you and I to live in a state of pride where, where we exalt ourselves, where we are independent of our Lord, thus leaving no room for God and His glory. Pride, Satan is working in our hearts just like he did in Genesis 3. To try to help, to, to try to get into the people of God, the idea that you can be like God and you don't need Him. And so the text provides us with the solution of resisting Him, being firm in your faith. I think that means two things here, first and foremost. One, there, there has to be a saving faith. If, if you're going to resist the devil, then there must be saving faith in your life. Meaning at some point that, that you have trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to satisfy the wrath of God and to free you. You were a slave, the Scripture describes you have, to free you from the slavery of sin. And then to remember and to abide and to cherish that saving faith. The only way that you will be firm in that faith is to possess it and to refresh yourself with it. The second way that you can stand firm in your faith is to have a deep knowledge of the Word of God. The Word of God often being called, described as a sword. 
The only way that you will get better with a sword is if you know where your sword is and, and you know how to use that sword. But so often when people are fighting and experiencing temptation, they know very little about where to turn in God's Word. How will they use God's Word? And where will they go to fight temptation? The text also tells us this, that if the devil is a roaring lion, that we ought to take temptation seriously. One of the joys in my job is I get to do a lot of counseling. Counseling of members of our church and counseling for members of the community. People come to counseling for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes for suffering. Sometimes for wisdom and counsel according to the Word of God. How to navigate a particular situation. But sometimes people come to counseling because they're, they're struggling with life-dominating sin. And perhaps it's been a sin that they've been dealing with for a long period of time. And I don't just mean regular addictions, but just they see the presence of sin in their life and they want to be free from that sin. But one of the most common patterns that I see in counseling is that often people don't take temptation to sin very seriously at its beginning. Meaning, if you, could, if you would think about sin on, or temptation on a scale 1 to 10, when a number 1 pops up, they, they just ignore it. They try to look the other way. It's only when sin enters the stage of 7s and 8s and 9s and 10s that the folks truly start taking it seriously for a moment. And often that strategy of ignoring temptation hoping that that will work, is a strategy that ends in failure. And I think part of the reason that so many, so many of us don't take temptation seriously is, is we don't truly believe how it could end. If the devil is compared to a roaring lion, just picture yourself out on safari for a moment. If the devil is pictured as a roaring lion and you see in the distance a lion, I hope and pray that you take that seriously. If you wait to take the fact that there's a roaring lion seriously till he's right in front of you at your camp, you are already too late. So many times we don't take the roaring lion seriously. So often we don't take the, the temptation that is before us seriously. And that, that might even be one of the most important things as you seek to humble yourselves that you consider today. And that you would be prepared for the next time the, the roaring lion shows up. Be prepared from the Word of God with where you will go and what actions you will take so that God could be glorified in your life. The text also says that we resist the devil by finding hope. Finding hope in the universal sufferings of the church. Our text puts it this way, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, the translation of the Bible can be a very tricky thing. We're using, for example, the, the New American Standard Bible. 
One of the features of the NASB Bible is it seeks to preserve much of the original form of the Scriptures, and I I think for good reason, because meaning is found in the form. But every once in a while, a a translation might pop up, and this is one that I've seen where where the, the way in which the translators put the words together just sometimes seems confusing. That's where using other translations can be just so helpful. And I, and I think at least looking here at the ESV for a moment helps us capture the nuance of what Peter was trying to describe. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I think this helps us see the picture of Peter's trying to paint. There are Christians who are suffering all over the world. One of the ways that we resist the devil is that we find hope in the suffering of others. No doubt that you have heard, misery loves company. I don't think that that's what the text is arguing here. Nobody wants to suffer alone, but rather there, there is some joy found in the fact that, that as we go through something hard and, and know that our fellow brothers and sisters are going through something hard, there is a way in which we stand up to the temptation of Satan knowing that we have not been singled out, but rather that our experience of temptation indicates and validates our identity my freshman year here at Purdue, I I pledged a fraternity. Back then it was a co-op, but now it's a fraternity known as BYX. Back then it was Fairway. And part of the rushing experience, if you've ever been a part of something like that or heard it, is just to make your life miserable. That's part of what the Army and the Marines, right? The goal is just to see if we make this guy's life miserable enough, will he just drop out? I won't recount you with all the ways in which they tried to make our lives miserable, but, but one of the aspects of making our lives miserable in that pledgeship was we felt a greater connection with those around us. As we had gone through all of these hard, difficult, trying times with the guys in the house, we felt as a group closer and closer together. And that's one of the effects of standing firm in our faith and one of the effects of looking at those around the world who are suffering is it should reaffirm our faith in those difficult and trying times. Text you one of the reasons that we've introduced here at Faith West, the Missionary of the Month. It's something our church has done for a while but hasn't necessarily been one of our emphases over here is that we want to be able to pray for those missionaries around the world who, who are doing such important work, but, but also have such difficult and trying circumstances. Meaning it can be so easy for us to complain and to, to see only our small circumstances in our own lives, but when you look at what's happening at the church in China and Iran and Russia and so on, it is meant to, in part, deliver hope hope of the gospel and hope that we will overcome the devil. Thirdly, our text then reminds us here at the end to remember our promised reward. To remember our promised reward from God's grace. 
after you've suffered then a little while. Generally, that is how it is described in text in the Scripture. It didn't always feel like a little while, but, but after you've suffered a little while, the, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself. And, and this is what God Himself will do. This isn't what we need to do. The text says this is what He will do. He will confirm. He will, he will perfect he will confirm, He will strengthen, and He will establish you. Thinking about our suffering here for a moment in terms of a little while, I know that there are many here who go through suffering and temptation that doesn't feel like a little while. What the text is encouraging us to do in these moments is to look beyond where we're at in these moments, to look beyond to God's eternal purposes. So if you find yourself here this morning as one of those individuals who who feels and who believes that, that they're going through intense and long periods of suffering, I would encourage you to study heaven. I would encourage you to get to know your Bible and what it says about the future. And I would encourage you to get to know the verses that describe why God is doing what He is doing in His sovereign and eternal plan. Then as I highlighted, the text says that God will do these four things in our lives as we're going through suffering. He will perfect you. Now, I don't mean, and the text does not mean that by perfect you will reach some sort of perfection, i.e. sinlessness here in this life. There are Christians who believe rather wrongly that they can obtain in this life a state of perfection without sin. To those people, I just want to strap like a little GoPro on and just watch a week. That's not what the text is describing here this morning. And maybe another use from Paul, not Peter, helps us see the, the nuance of what he's talking about here from 1 Corinthians 1.10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the same Greek word that's about to appear, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but you be made perfect that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. The concept here that God is talking about, that Peter is writing about here, is the concept of wholeness. Meaning there is some sort of whole, there's some sort of brokenness in all of us, and that God is working in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our hardships, to, to bring us back to that place of wholeness. I mentioned before, and we won't spend much time, the the devil's name literally means the the one who divides, the one who separates, and, and God is trying to and will, and He promises to bring back wholeness. The text also says that God will confirm us. When you think about confirming something, my mind tends to navigate to the idea that you had to confirm a reservation. If you've ever been in the spot where where you made a reservation and you didn't confirm your reservation, that that is a very painful place to be. I remember this happening to me very well on a backpacking trip that I went through Europe in my college days. 
Uh, it was the end of a study abroad semester, and, and I had bought tickets from Paris to Rome on the eve of Christmas. It's a very busy travel time, apparently. And what I didn't do, just being a young college kid, is I didn't confirm my reservation. So when I showed up to that train and presented the engineer with my, pla- with my ticket, he asked for my confirmation. And I didn't really understand. I said, well, I've got my ticket here. And he said, we need your confirmation. And I didn't have it. I'd love to say I didn't get on the train, but I did get on the train. We just snuck into the bathroom car and we got to Rome anyways. It was a long trip in the bathroom. <laughs> This is a helpful concept for us to think about confirming who we are. This suffering confirms who we are. When we think about often when we suffer, we feel as if, we believe as if this is an indication that we've fallen out of love with God. But the opposite is true. And one day God will ultimately confirm our identity in Him and in Christ The text says also that it will strengthen us. No doubt that you've seen that in your own life, that the sufferings that you experience, God is strengthening you. And he talks about establishing us, to, to lay, to construct a foundation. This is what God says He is doing in the midst of our hard and difficult times. But the only way that any of this is going to work to bring us back to the beginning of our text here this morning is that we would humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God by casting our anxieties, knowing that He cares for you and me. Seeing that that His love for us is so great that he, He wants us to cast those anxieties on us and to take temptation seriously, ultimately placing our gaze on the hope of heaven. So this week, this Memorial Day week, I hope that you would take that seriously. I hope that you would look for areas in your life to find where can I truly humble myself by casting those anxieties? Where must I truly flee temptation and take it seriously? And how can I ultimately place my hope in the God of grace in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you here this morning and we offer you thanks. Thank you that your word does confirm us. Your word does establish us. And that this is a work that you promised to perfect one day in glory, but are working even now. Father, I pray that as we seek to be a people who humbles ourselves under your mighty hand of God, that there be evidence this week that not waiting till temptation at its height or difficulties are more than we can bear, but that we would be a people who are quick to cast our anxieties on you. And that we would see and rejoice and believe that you love us and that you care for us. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent your son to die for us that would make all of these things possible. And it's in His precious, and it's in His holy, and it is in His eternal name we pray these things. Amen.